Good morning. And welcome to the Center for Spiritual Living. I thought the lyrics from uh, Come were appropriate today uh, in light of the fact that the local hockey team is uh, uh, in a situation, but it is not a caravan of despair, I'd like to point out. (laughs) Yeah, it's just not. Though I'd like to get some sleep back from staying up the other night and watching those overtimes. All right. So um, what I'm going to do th- right now, if you're here for the first time, I'm going to sound these uh, chimes together, which will signal we'll, we'll just simply move into silence for 30 seconds. I will sing a chant called In This Very Room, and then I will offer a prayer that helps, I think, bring us all together, presence us. So here we go. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear. For spirit, one spirit is in this very room, in this very room, in this very room. And so thank you for allowing me to, to let my words be your words in this moment. And if They don't fit. Let them wash over you. But I affirm and know, standing upon the awareness and the wisdom and the perennial truth of Dr. Ernest Holmes and so many beautiful avatars, including Jesus of Nazareth, articulated that there's one life, one presence, one power. It's a vibration of the Most High. At its highest possibility is unconditional love, peace that passeth all understanding, joy and celebration, creativity, opportunity. And so what I affirm and know in this moment Standing in faith is that that life is my life in the I am for each person here. And so what I know is whatever will allow me to shift and move forward in that and see my life from that higher perspective, that higher consciousness, I open myself in this moment. I know that life is for me. I know that something is seeking my attention. That which I am looking for, I am looking with. So I awaken this day to that awareness. The unconscious becoming conscious. This is, it is an ever-becoming And so I celebrate that, and I work with that, and I I mentor that, and I I, I welcome that. And so let us know this day that as we come in these doors that we are shifted and changed just simply by making the decision to be here, that there's an opportunity for each one of us in this moment, in each moment hereafter. And so I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for the core of volunteers that have through the, the, the years have been in service to this community, continue to be in service to this community, to our beautiful musicians all the beautiful vocal artists that have graced us and inspired us over the years and the things that are emerging now 
as a result of our commitment to being a, continuing to be a, a force for good and a presence of light upon this planet. And so I release these words in gratitude and appreciation, knowing that they, re- they reflect a small portion of what is awaiting my welcome. And so I stand with you in the eager anticipation of the greater yet to be. This is, we are, a place where possibility shows up. This is, and we are, a place where generosity shows up. This is, and we are, whatever words of declaration you want to put upon it. And this infinite law always says yes. That is the simplicity and the truth of what we stand upon. So in great gratitude and appreciation for what has brought us here together today, what has been, what is now, and what is yet to be, I give thanks and invite you to say with me. And so it is. All right, here we are. So we are, I am a place where generosity shows up. So I chose generosity this month because we're talking about service. We're talking about this idea of, and and, and what I know from the reading that I've done and the things that I've been inspired by is that service is the highest activity that any of us can be about upon this planet. Um, From... The Buddha to uh, uh, Deepak Chopra writes about it quite a bit in Finding God. Uh, the work of um, Richard uh, Barnett, who's a psychologist, also talks about it, that, it, that, that, that all the roads lead to service. But I want to talk about some of the, the mechanics of service today and, then, and speak a little bit also about what Dr. Ernest Holmes uh, articulated, this wonderful book called Living the Science of Mind, which is sort of a companion to um, the Science of Mind textbook. There's actually a chapter in it called Getting and Giving, because Dr. Holmes is really clear about this idea of giving and getting, what it looked like, what the opportunity was. So he, I, I picked a quote actually from that chapter to share with you. To refuse to give is to refuse to live to the fullest extent. To refuse to give love is to refuse to receive love. That which we refuse to give out not only closes the door on giving, but also on receiving as well. So around this idea of, and I'm not just talking finances, because it's easy to just drop into this uh, awareness of financing. I'm talking about all the capacities of life. So what we're seeking in order to to turn the tap open in a bigger way is to to actually be the thing itself, to generate more of that very same, the consciousness. And it's an ongoing ongoing process. So there's a wonderful... um, Researcher, We live in a time of such great information. A young man, he's an organizational psychologist by the name of Adam Grant. And Adam Grant has identified the dynamics of giving. And he's, he's found three categories, done study after study after study for, year, for a number of years. And he talks about um, the world is made up of givers, takers, and matchers. And some interesting statistics around this. Um, with takers, he said there's a pattern of paranoia involved with takers. Takers are worried there's not enough. There's not enough, there's not going to be enough, and I won't, certainly won't have enough. So it's a bit of a motivation. Givers approach most interactions by, by asking, how, what can I do for you? Takers will ask, what can you do for me? And then there's matchers. So, you know, I ask you to just think about it right now, and, and matchers are... Um, quid pro quo, you've done something nice for me, I'm going to do something nice for you. And so I just think about what category you might be in. I have a little test for you, because takers sometimes can be considered narcissists, because it's all about them, but a little test I want to put up there for you. On the next slide. So step number one, take a moment to think about yourself. 
And step number two, if you made it to step number two, you're not a narcissist. So it's a pretty simple test. Because not all takers are narcissists. Some takers have just been burned too many times in being givers, and they finally can't do it anymore. In a survey of 30,000 people, most people are right in the, the third style, which is matchers. Matchers, as I said, are something that, that I'll do something for you if you do something for me. And matchers is the majority. It seems to be the safest place to live life. And it seems to be one of the most productive ways to live your life. What do you think? Be a matcher. Think it's the most productive, safest? Maybe. So, givers, takers, and matchers. Interestingly enough, in studies, and and there's hundreds of studies that uh, Adam did around this, in businesses, he studied a lot of organizations and businesses. He studied engineers, he studied hospital environments, healthcare, um, a variety of different aspects. But in organizations he studied, the least productive people in those organizations, guess which ones they were? The least productive. You were here the first service, so you don't get to guess. The which ones? The matchers? The givers. The givers are the least productive. That uh, the worst performers in medical schools are the ones who closely identify with the statement, I love helping others. Uh, That's a piece of it, but don't despair. There's more. Givers also make organizations better. In thousands of, of work units that they studied in compiling data, givers help produce higher profits, employee retention, customer satisfaction. They even lower operating expenses. So here's these givers... They're the least well-performing because most of the time the givers, the, the people that are 100% invested in just giving it all away, don't have time for themselves. So in medical school, when the, somebody's a student helping another student and you're always busy doing their homework for them or you're always helping them with their project or in work, you're always helping other people get their stuff done, your stuff suffers. And so you're the least productive. So what does it take to build a culture where givers are, actually succeed? Because that's the key. And there's a subtlety to this. So if givers are the worst performers, who are the best performers? Takers. Votes over there for takers. The best performers in any organization are the givers. They run the gamut from the lowest to the highest. Isn't that interesting? So what is it? What are the qualities? What are the characteristics? And so he's done these touches. And, and see, the thing about takers is um, if you become going to an environment, has anybody ever worked with or been around a taker? Yeah, okay. So when you're around a taker, the matchers, see what happens, it gives the matchers something to do because what the matchers do when they identify a taker, they make it their life purpose to punish the hell out of that person. <laughs> Just the way it works. Because by God, as a matcher, everything needs to be equal. Everything needs to be fair and square, and those bastard takers, I'm going to get them. But that's how matchers work. They believe in an eye for an eye. They believe in a just world. So when a matcher meets a taker, they make it their mission to punish them. And if you're a taker, it tends to catch up with you. So the logical conclusion must be matchers are the best performers, as we talked, or takers, but it's actually the givers again. In every job and in every organization, studies show that the best results come from givers. And then the data on sales revenue, givers uh, make up the highest and the lowest. The same with engineers, the same with medical students, 
to the highest and the lowest. Givers are overrepresented at the top and the bottom of every successful metric tracked. So the other day, Laura and I watched the movie Founder. Has anybody seen Founder? It's about Ray Kroc, the, the guy that helped launch McDonald's. And so back in the 1950s, he ran into, he was a, um, he sold a milkshake machine. It had a bunch of, you could do five or six at a time. And he was traveling the road and he was listening to his self-improvement records. He had his little record player and he, they showed him in his, his motel and he's listening to it. And he, you know, it's somebody like, I don't know who it was, Earl Nightingale and talking about, you know, that, that uh, you, you got to keep going and all this stuff just to keep his spirits up because they showed him going into places to sell these milkshake makers and he wasn't getting a lot of sales. And he found the McDonald's brothers in San Bernardino, California. And these guys were amazing, these two brothers. And they designed this, they called it the Speedy System. And they showed him designing it on the, the uh, a tennis court with chalk. So we'd have the deep fryer here, and we'd have this over here, and this over here. And they kept moving it around. They had these young men that were, were playing the parts of employees. And then they would figure out whose elbow was getting bumped, because it was a really tight little space to make the speedy system so they could produce a hamburger in 15 or 30 seconds. Hot hamburger, no bellhops. People had to walk to the window to get their food. They would eat in their car. They, would, they wouldn't have any plates. They would throw the bags away. I mean, it was revolutionary, the speedy system. And Ray Kroc saw it and he said, this is amazing. Well, he went into partnership with them and he struck a deal and he signed a contract and it turned out the contract wasn't enough. He was getting 1.4% of every hamburger sold. And after, I don't know how long, he said, I'm not making any money. In fact, I'm losing money under this deal. And he called the McDonald's brothers up. And they, the McDonald's brothers really, really grounded and clear about who they were and what they stood for because they wanted to build this great quality product and, and quality was everything. And they didn't want it to grow so fast. Ray wanted to sell, you know, he wanted to get it out in the world. So they, but, but they had this wonderful idea that they collaborated on. And so Ray called them and said, hey, I need 4%. And the McDonald's brothers said, tough luck, Ray. And they slammed the phone down. Well, after a little bit of figure, trying to figure this out, uh, someone came along and said to Ray Kroc, you know, what business are you in? And he said, I don't want to ruin the movie for you, but I'm going to. Uh, he said, what business are you in? And he said, well, I sell, I'm selling hamburgers. He said, no, you're not. You're in the real estate business. And so Ray Kroc started buying the land that they put the franchises on. And he held the lease on the land, and he would renegotiate it every so often. And, and that way, also, he's able to maintain standards, because part of the problem when they started out, they'd sell a franchise, and in three weeks, somebody, they'd be selling fried chicken and biscuits and gravy, and he's just pulling his hair out. No, we're selling, we're, we're making hamburgers. Well, everybody loves chicken. So anyway, as the story goes along, Ray Kroc just has built this empire. I mean, it's what we have today. The thousands of McDonald's all over the planet. And that whole corporation, it was, it's still thriving. But the McDonald's brothers got left in the dust. And you could look at that. I mean, this is a dynamic. But what if they'd said to Ray Kroc, you know what, Ray, we want to work with you, and we'll give you 4%. We'll make this work for you, too. Could have been. What if Ray Kroc was generous enough and, and, and say, you know, let's partner on the real estate. It's worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars if it didn't happen. But what an example of people being entrenched in certain ways of doing things that it's got to be this way, it's my way. And Ray Kroc, being the person that he was, you know, eventually built this, this empire. The beautiful thing about it is when he passed away and his wife, Joan, um, uh, inherited everything, she gave most of the money away to charity, to hospitals and to healthcare research and to uh, the Salvation Army received the vast uh, sum of it. 
But an interesting story about givers and takers and negotiating and, and all this, this spirit of collaboration or not that created this. It's just a fascinating example of it. So how do we, I guess the, the question I'd ask you is, how do we create a world where more of the givers get to excel? What are the characteristics that allow people to perform at a high level and be givers? Interesting question, isn't it? Because life and our teaching is really about giving and receiving. Dr. Holmes in this beautiful book talks about it. In the, he says, if the going out and the coming back are equal, then in a certain sense, like the energy and mass of Einstein, they are equal, identical, and interchangeable. To refuse to give is to refuse to live to the fullest extent. To refuse to give love is to refuse to receive love. And that which we refuse to give out only closes the door on the giving, but also on the receiving as well. How many of us can sit here and just continue to take an in-breath? Just inhale the whole time you're here. Doesn't work. See? He or she would agree with that. But to build the capacity, because as we build a greater capacity about what it is we long to experience, then we also build a greater capacity in, in terms of giving to receive. It's just the nature of how it works. It's one of the fundamental principles that we stand upon. So one of the keys within with, um, Adam Grant's research is, first of all, recognize givers are the most valuable people in any organization. And it's important, number one, to protect givers. Because one of the, the, the challenges with people that give and only know how to give is they burn out. One of my heroes growing up was Bud Grant, and when they used to talk about coaches burning out, I remember when Dick Vermeil was a coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, and he finally had a nervous breakdown, and Bud Grant said, well, burnout is trying to give what you don't have, and it's true. So how do we, because part of it is self-regulation, you know, I, and I've watched it here over and over again. People come in, and they, ta- they take something on, and then before you know it, it's like they, they're out the door. It's hard to anticipate. At a certain point, people can give too much, Try to give what you don't have. So part of it is being aware of it and, and, and nurturing it, but also part of it is self-responsibility. I can give this. And it's really key because successful givers know how to do this. There's a guy by the name of Adam Rifkin. He's a successful serial entrepreneur. And Adam Rifkin uses what he calls the five-minute favor. It's a secret formula, the five-minute favor. So he doesn't go out and just give everything away and give and give and give because that's how I found meaning. And, I'm, and I was raised that way. I was raised that way, and I still struggle with it. You know, you, you ever put everybody else before you. My mother taught us well. Very, very Catholic idea. And I'm picking on the Catholics, but she was one of the best. But he says, Adam, Adam Rifkin says, you don't have to be Gandhi or Mother Teresa. You just have to find small ways to add value to people's lives. It could be as simple as making an introduction between two people who don't know each other. Or it could be sharing your knowledge or a little bit of feedback. Or it could be something as simple as, as somebody's work has gone unnoticed. Successful givers use five-minute favors or strategic giving to help set boundaries and protect themselves. So it would probably look something like this. So, Sharon, come on up here. Come on. Sharon, seminar. I need your help. Thank you for your willingness to come up here and be part of the talk today. So this is Sharon Simonato, and she's just a, an angel of God's presence in this community and in the world. And she is, she is one of the mainstays of our crystal bed volunteers. So people that come to uh, have a crystal bed are typically blessed by her energy and her commitment to that. So she provides, she gives 
from her heart to uh, create that space for people to participate in that crystal bed. So I just want to acknowledge that and thank you publicly in front of everybody and God as well because it is, it's so important and there's 50 other people in this room that I could pull up here and do the same. But that little thing and to be able to express that and acknowledge that and say thank you mm. for the lives that you've changed by people. If nothing else, people slowing down in their lives and having a moment for their souls to catch up with them over there. And we know it's far more powerful than that, but thank you for your devotion to that and being who you are. So. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about that is, is everybody's, everybody's gifted by that. It's a gift to me. It's a gift to, to us to witness that. It, it cracks us all open. It's not because it, we're all one. And so as Adam Rifkin in his brilliance said, you know, acknowledging somebody's works have gone unnoticed. Successful givers use five-minute favors or strategic giving to help set boundaries and protect themselves. And it doesn't mean that we're threatened. It just simply means that we live a life of balance. I'm going to pick on somebody else right now that doesn't know I'm going to do this, but my, one of my heroes in this community is Reverend Tammy Banting. I mean, she, she gets this. She's not all over the place trying to fix everything all the time, but when we, we say, Reverend Tammy, we need your help with it, she's there. But she also has this wonderful life, and she travels, and she's involved with so many beautiful things. I mean, this is the way I want to live my life, too. I'm going to be gone in June for three weekends. And, I want to, and so when I came back, as I was gone, and I don't know, but, but I got to take some time off, guys, for a variety of reasons. And I'm not out looking for another job because people say, you out looking for another job? No, I'm not out looking for another job. There's things I want to do. But to be able to invite people to come in and share and be part of it, and Reverend Tammy's going to be one of them. We've got some wonderful people lined up to do this. And I get it. Sometimes people speak. We had a guy from Calgary that came and he spoke. And did you know what he said? And it wasn't good. And I was like, all right. Let me cancel all my trips again and make sure I'm here for every talk. I mean, that doesn't work. I get it. It's going to be inconsistent at times. Can we be generous enough to like just maybe one Sunday won't be spectacular. It'll be okay. We, I mean, come. Is that one talk the deal breaker for you? I just, and I hear it every time I go. I come back. I wonder who'll be complaining this time. And then somebody will say to me, man, that guy was brilliant. And I'm like, okay, whatever. You go talk to that person because I don't know what happened. I wasn't here. But I'm just saying that, 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 that uh, and see, that's part of, so, and part of it, see, because we can all be takers, we can all be givers. So are you showing up because there's something in it for you? What's in this for me today? And if it's a talk that's not spectacular and you don't go out of here 10 feet in the air, then you didn't get what you needed. And I would say that's an indication that maybe there's a generosity of spirit that could be more available at times. Because your consciousness is a gift to people. There are people in this auditorium this day that have real world problems. People that are doing things like breast cancer and lung cancer. There's serious stuff going on here. And our consciousness is what we stand for. We are a community of consciousness. Who is your practitioner is my question. Who is your practitioner? I see all the questions that come in. Who's your practitioner? Because they're all error beliefs. There's not enough. I get it. So what do you want me to do with your error belief? If there's not enough, then are you working and using the spiritual principles here to help transform that and be part of the solution? Or you just want to keep fixing the blame? Because it's so popular. And out in the world, that's what goes on. 
Joe Dispenza says, to shift matter through matter. If we can't use our spiritual principles to transform this community, then we're a fraud. We are an absolute fraud. And I'm going to tell you something. I want to be in a community where people want to do the work. I do. I'm, I, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm not... I'm, no, thank you. I want to be in a community where all of a sudden I'm making an accusation and I have enough awareness and consciousness to say, that's alive in me. That's alive in me because I can see it and I can make the accusation. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a threat. That's the truth. That's the perennial wisdom we stand upon. But when you're here to get your needs met and your needs met only, it doesn't work. Be part of the solution. If all you can bring is complaints and problems without a solution, what do we do with that? Support that? Support your limitation? There's not enough? The sky is falling? So part of it, the other piece, second piece, is creating a culture where it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to ask for help. So when I say, what is the solution? How can we move forward from this? Dr. Holmes says it right here in this chapter again, and getting and giving, he says, we are subject to it, but not to the predetermined sense, for no matter what happened yesterday, we can change its sequence today. We can change its sequence today, but it's the hardest thing in the world to do, and I know that. Because just like the McDonald's brothers, and just like Ray Kroc, we know what's right. See, I don't have that advantage. I know what's true and what I value. But what you think is right and what I think are right are two different things. I'm not Donald Trump. I don't have everybody's answer. But something within me, as Dr. Holmes said, does. So, creating a culture where seeking help is the norm. Where people ask for a lot of help, givers are more successful. So nurses, a few nurses here, okay? He went in and he studied hospitals. What he found was that there were certain floors where everybody was collaborating. There was a lot of wonderful interaction going on. And on some floors in the same hospitals, nothing was happening. It was, it was not that way. And what they found was on those certain floors where people were asking for help all the time, there was actually one nurse that was assigned to help. That one person there said, you know, you need help. So-and-so's over here to help you. What a brilliant idea. Who would have thought? Well, let's set somebody up. to Let's set these people up for success. So then it wasn't that if I asked for help that there's something wrong with me or I'm vulnerable or I'm incompetent. It was actually, it was encouraged. It's not embarrassing to ask for help. We, and we, we ask for help all the time here. And we thank you. Thank you for doing it. Help seeking is not only important for the well-being of the giver, it's critical to getting more people to act like givers. And there's a gift in that, believe it or not. And if you feel like you're being imposed upon when we do that, and not just here, but in the world, it's okay to say no. And look at that and say, wow, I'm, I feel like this is an imposition. That's okay. But to realize it's okay to get better at asking for help. I can use your help. Studies have shown that the most productive way to build a culture of givers is to be careful who you let on the team. Very important. Very important. Who you let on the team. You got to get the right people on the bus. Because if you have the wrong people on the bus, he said, you let one taker on the bus and the givers will stop helping. Because they'll look at that taker and they'll say, you know, I'm surrounded by snakes. Sneaks. I'm not giving. Let one taker on that bus, it all changes. Or if one giver on the team, 
that's doing everything, all the other givers will just go, Phew, this is great. I can be on the team and so-and-so is doing all the work. I get the status and I don't have to do anything. So it's a fine art. Effective team building is not about bringing in the givers. It's about weeding out the takers. And if you do that well, you'll be left with givers. And what happens when you're left with givers is the matchers want to match it because they go, look what's happening here. Oh, my gosh, I can help too. I can be part of that. So how do we detect a taker before it's too late? Well, a lot of times it's called agreeableness. We confuse agreeableness with giving. They don't correlate. In fact, in Canada, they did a survey. They, had a, they wanted to find out because they said that this is very common. Agreeableness is a very common characteristic in Canada. You know, anybody notice that? And they asked Canadians the slogan, as Canadian as, and they were thinking maybe as maple syrup or as hockey or, or uh, a snow or whatever it may be, or downhill skiing. This, the theme was that they came up with as Canadian as possible under the circumstances. That's the new Canadian theme. As Canadian as possible under the circumstances. Seems very Canadian, doesn't it? But there's a misconception that agreeable people are generous. There's no correlation between givers and whether they are agreeable or disagreeable. Giving and taking are more about your inner life, what you value. So they can be agreeable givers. They say yes to everything. I've suffered for that most of my adult life. Agreeable takers will kiss up and then they'll kick you down. They're also called fakers. Nice to your face, it'll stab you in the back. There's disagreeable givers, can look gruff and tough on the surface, but have other interests at heart, so they don't write them off too quickly. And then there's disagreeable takers, but we'll know who they are pretty quickly. So, Dr. Holmes said, though beautifully in this, this beautiful book, if we give up but a little, we receive only an equal amount. We can begin to give out more, and just as surely as we do this, more will return to us. But I would say the important thing about this is, is to understand the consciousness from which we give. That we are not here to be martyrs. We're not here to be sacrificed. We're not here to be exploited. We're here to give and receive in a healthy way. So when we're in the consciousness, we're in the first kingdom consciousness of giving, it's very easy to overgive and to not take care of ourselves. Because if we don't fill the cup, we become depleted. We get burned out. We walk away from whatever it may be. And the subtleties of it, so the most effective givers, the highest producers in an organization, give strategically. Those five-minute favors. I can do this. I can identify what I can do. I brought Deb Meville up, and, 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 uh, and Darcy's been helping. Every Saturday I've come, and Darcy, for the, I don't know how many weeks now they've been here, getting the gardens ready to plant flowers. Every week. And I want to thank you, Darcy, and I thank Deb at the first show. Let's give Darcy a hand as well. But, but those things go on, and I see it, and I always, and, and I'm so, so appreciative of it. Oh, they think I'm done. Oh, not done yet. So here's what I want to do. Okay, because they're inching to get out here. They've probably got places to be this afternoon, a hockey game to watch or something. What I'm going to invite, um, Bill, we have our song. I'm going to invite you to, let's, let's finish in a big note today and celebrate who we are and what we are, and it's called I Love My Life. The words will be up there. Bill's going to cue it up. John's going to bring up the words, and let's just, let's rock the house here. Move to this music. Let this be your mantra by Robbie Williams. I love my life. I am powerful. I am beautiful. I am free. I love my life. 
Beautiful song. Thank you. Because that's our opportunity to love our lives. At our workshop this afternoon at 2 o'clock, we're going to do a meditation around this whole idea of the embodiment of, of a new frequency and blessing the energy centers of the body. It's beautiful stuff. So if you have a chance to be here at 2, I encourage you to be there. So let's uh, invite our ushers to come forward. I guess the guys are going to play a song now. I think they know we're done. There they are. Good work, guys.